The war was over. The blasted Germans were finally out of France. What was left was total and utter devastation. Raoul dabbed a handkerchief to his damp temple. How was Paris to come back from this? While he was able to present every bit the cool collected statesman in public, in the confines of his office, his own impuissance haunted him. Here, he was just an exhausted man with an enormous task ahead of him. Raoul had served as the Minister of Munitions before the war and had recently stepped into the role of president of the relief organization L'Entrade Française. Everyone was looking towards him to come up with a solution. At least, it certainly felt that way. A soft whistle escaped his pursed lips. He had an idea for something that might boost morale and help France out of financial ruin. But he was going to need help. And a lot of it. At just that second, there was a light rap on his door. His secretary poked her head in. Monsieur Richie is here for your appointment. Shall I send him in? Excellent, please. Robert Ricci, a slim, well-dressed gentleman with an aquiline nose, prominent widow's peak, and piercing dark eyes, stepped into Raoul's office. "'Good afternoon, Monsieur Dautry,' Ricci said, as he accepted the seat across the large oak desk from Raoul. The two exchanged a few pleasantries before Raoul cut to the chase. "'Monsieur Ricci, thank you for coming. I have some business that I would like to present to you. I believe it could help us both.' As Raoul explained, Ricci's eyes widened momentarily. He nodded slowly. We will bring it up with Lelong, and I will speak to my mother. Ricci's mother was the fashion doyenne Maria Nina Ricci, whose eponymous couture house had survived the ravages of the war. Robert managed the company's finances. The two men would still have to send a proposal up the chain, but Raoul felt his breath come just a little bit easier, knowing that Ricci was completely on board. Hello and welcome to History Unhemmed, a podcast that delves into and unravels the sometimes shiny, sometimes sinister side of fashion and dress. I'm your host, Felicia. Join me in taking a closer look at sartorial scandals, tailored taboos, troubling trends, controversial couture, and other wrinkles in fashion history. If today's episode leaves you wanting more information, be sure to check out a list of resources posted in the show notes wherever you get your podcasts. Some of our content may be disturbing, inappropriate, or perhaps just a tad bit complicated to fully grasp for younger audiences. I also have a bit of a potty mouth and a tendency towards some super cheesy wordplay. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Last episode, I took y'all through the origins of the European fashion doll and how the presence of Pandora's and Poupe de Mode were entrenched in the history of some of Europe's most powerful and confusingly inbred royal families. The last episode ended with French-made Victorian porcelain dolls. The late 19th and early 20th centuries saw magazines and later photography become the preferred methods of transmitting information regarding dress and deportment. That said... Collecting and playing with beautifully made dolls, with extensive wardrobes, remained very popular. Through the 19th and then early 20th century, Paris remained the fashion capital of Europe. This was the case for both living, breathing ladies and their pint-sized porcelain counterparts. While used less and less as essential tools of the trade, 
dolls retained a close relationship with fashion in the 20th century. On June 21, 1924, at the Hôtel Jean Charpentier, an exhibition opened that featured 25 fashion dolls. The garments worn by said dolls presented the evolution of European women's fashions going back as far as 1900. The exhibition was called L'Exposition des Dames Aujourd'hui, or The Exhibit of Today's Women. The dolls displayed meticulously constructed small-scale fashions in luxury fabrics like silk chiffon and velvet. And, naturally, one could not appear in public without the proper appurtenances. The dolls were accessorized to the T, with purses, jewelry, shoes, etc. They even had the appropriate underwear for each outfit, with no details omitted. Think a teeny tiny corset, for example, constructed with all the boning, lace, and care of a full-sized one. The exhibition was a huge hit. The outfits, sported by the little trendsetters, for that's exactly what they were, were reproduced and made into patterns that were published in magazines around the world. The exhibition also happened to coincide with the Olympics that were being held in Paris from about May to July of that year. Also in the 1920s, the famed Parisian department store Au Bon Marché introduced the Boudoir Bebe. The Boudoir Bebe featured compositor porcelain legs, arms, and faces, and the most up-to-date hairstyles. They depicted glamorous adult women garbed in fine gowns of silk, velvet, and cotton. Their faces were even painted to the makeup standards of the day, including eyeshadow and blush. Boudoir bebés were made to sit on one's bed as a lovely decoration. They were also called flapper dolls, bed dolls, or the ever-creative French dolls, and remained in production until about the 1940s. The end of the 19th century also saw the development of a plethora of plastics, starting with celluloid. Celluloid, a plastic more often associated with film and billiard balls, came out of a demand for an ivory substitute and an increased popularity in games played with cues on tables. These two factors are not unrelated. Billiard balls prior to the invention of celluloid were made of ivory. This, of course, was expensive and a bit harder to come by, to say the least, making billiards a pastime of the wealthy elite over, say, the working-class commoner. The first coin-operated billiard table was introduced in the early 1900s. The patent approved in 1903. At the time, it cost a penny to play. Celluloid had a huge impact on the toy industry, especially dolls. Celluloid dolls were more durable, but celluloid was also extremely flammable. Celluloid's discovery led to the development of other plastics, including Bakelite in 1907 by Leo Bakeland. If Bakelite sounds familiar to you, you, like this podcast host, have probably spent more than a few hours around vintage costume jewelry, especially that produced in the 1930s. Bakelite was branded as, quote, the material of a thousand uses, end quote, and was touted for its ability to be molded and shaped any and every which way. The expansion of plastics in the 20th century had a democratizing effect on dolls, making them more affordable and thus more accessible to children across social classes. Bertha Alexander Berman was born in 1895. Berman's mother, Hannah Pepper, was an Austrian-Jewish immigrant who had made her way to the States from Russia. Bertha's biological father had died when she was very young. Hannah remarried Maurice, or Maurice Alexander. He and Hannah would have three more children, 
but he always treated Bertha as one of his own. Alexander had been born in Ukraine and apprenticed as a repairman in Germany before moving to the United States. Morris owned Doll Hospital on the Lower East Side. Bertha would accompany him and play with the broken dolls. They were largely porcelain and pricey at this point, so it makes sense that rather than forking over a large sum for a brand new doll, people would first try to fix the original. Moreover, dolls were often beloved by their owners as members of the family. This kind of reminds me of Dolly, Nadja's toy on the show What We Do in the Shadows, a porcelain doll inhabited by the ghost of Nadja's human pre-vampire self. I bring her up because the doll has a similar place in her inhuman owner's heart, even before being possessed by the ghost. Touching on what I discussed last time, toy dolls are and have always been important in terms of socialization. Doll play was used to teach people, particularly children and young women, how to interact in society, whether that be at court or in a Victorian sitting room. In a study at Cardiff University done a couple of years ago, children were given dolls to play with. Researchers found that children used increased language about the thoughts and feelings of others when left to play alone with the dolls. Dolls benefited the social development of both girls and boys in the study, helping to improve and learn social skills, including empathy. Bertha Alexander became aware of the relationship between doll play, compassion, and social interaction long before the study in Wales. In her early 20s, Bertha changed her name to Beatrice and made her first doll between 1914 and 1918. This was in part due to embargoes placed on German-made products and the scarcity of certain French ones during World War I. Morris's doll hospital had no patients and was thus in serious trouble. Beatrice and her sisters took to making cloth dolls with painted faces dressed in Red Cross nurses' uniforms in an effort to increase morale and personal funds. In 1923, Beatrice opened the Madame Alexander Doll Company in New York. Notice that despite the company being American, she chose a name that aligned her with French elegance. Not a coincidence. The company's earliest dolls stood between 7 and 30 inches tall and were made of cloth. They were based primarily on literary and historical figures, so they started out more as portrait dolls than fashion dolls per se. Most of her dolls also possessed a youthful, chubby-cheeked look. Madame Alexander soon switched to making the dolls out of something called composition. Composition was comprised mostly of glue and sawdust, and sometimes included cornstarch and resin. Composition had been used to make doll bodies, for the ones with porcelain and bisque heads, as early as the 1870s. Since the material used to make a doll's head is generally what determines a doll's make type, dolls were only called composition dolls if their heads were made of composition. Madame Alexander was one of the first to create entirely plastic dolls in 1947. Ideal Toy Company had begun trying to do so a few years earlier in 1942. After World War II ended, most toy makers, especially those in the U.S., switched from composition to plastic. Following World War II's end in 1945, Paris, which had been at the center of luxury and fashion production for centuries, was a wreck. Between May 9th and June 22nd, 1940, the Germans captured France, Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. These areas would not be liberated until 1944 to 45. During German occupation, some materials were hard to come by, and a number of restrictions were placed on French fashion houses. A coat, for example, could not consist of over 4 meters or about 13 feet of fabric. 
a blouse was restricted to one meter. That's slightly under a yard. Belts had to be skinny. We're talking one and a half inches or about three centimeters in width. And, and one was permitted no more than one pair of shoes every four years. Haute couture was viewed as a potential threat to Nazi ideologies. And in order to survive, a number of companies established working relationships with the Germans. Nazi officials and their wives attended collection showings, shared tables with some of the most esteemed designers, and bought garments. There was also a considerable black market presence, and clients even risked their lives on occasion traveling to see couturiers who were, by all appearances, shuddered. Balenciaga's famously boxy coat was a particularly hot piece that people were willing to potentially die over. Lucien Lelong was the president of the Chambre Syndicale de la Couture Parisienne, CSCP, also called the Chambre Syndicate de la Haute Couture, which oversaw the production and regulation of French haute couture. The Nazis attempted to dismantle the CSCP and move operations to Berlin and Vienna, including raiding the CSCP's main office and seizing records about buyers, fashion houses, etc. Lelong played a big part in keeping couture in France. Fashion houses were not allowed to ship outside the country or even take photographs. A number of designers had already fled the country prior to occupation, including Membochet, Adrienne, and Elsa Scaparelli. Not to be glib, but it was a tricky time to run a Parisian fashion house. I promise an episode about Parisian couture during German occupation is absolutely in the works. Chances are, like this topic, it will require a multi-episode series. After the war, while still surviving, French fashion was hurting. That said, clients from across the globe were eagerly anticipating the return of that coveted tag, reading Fabriqué en France. Despite being eager to resume trade, Parisian haute couture was catching flack for violating fabric restrictions and not reducing related expenditures, particularly restrictions in place in allied nations, England, and the United States. To this, Lelong, who I had mentioned earlier, argued that French designers had spent occupation attempting to protect French fashion and to, quote, preserve the place it has always occupied in the eyes of the world, end quote. In the autumn of 1944, Robert Ricci, who oversaw PR for the Chambre des syndicats de la Haute Couture, and Raoul Dautry, president of L'Entrée Française, devised a relief project that would highlight the importance of this significant creative contribution. In March 1945, the Théâtre de la Mode, or the Theatre of Fashion, opened at the Pavilion de Marsan of the Louvre. The exhibition featured 237 fashion dolls wearing pieces designed by around 53 Parisian fashion houses. Among the designers represented were Lelong himself, Nina Ricci, Pierre Baumain, Hermès, Elsa Scaparelli, Jacques Fath, Jean Lavin, and Balenciaga. These dolls were designed by Hélène Bonnebel, who after the exhibition would go on to do a lot of illustration work and window displays for many couturiers, including Hermès. Robert Ricci suggested placing the dolls against backdrops designed by artists and set designers. Christian Barard was the artistic director of the project, who is well known for his set designs in theater and opera. He was also no stranger to fashion, having illustrated a number of covers for Vogue magazine between 1936 and 1939. These knee-high divas had heads made of plaster to allow some light to glow through them. They were displayed in lavish sets created by prominent artists, designers, and decorators. 
The sets had names like Le Jardin Incomparable, The Matchless Garden, and L'Ile de la Cité and La Place Vendôme, which refer to the elegant parts of the city which had roots at the center of Parisian arts and aristocracy. The surrealist artist Jean Cocteau also designed a tableau as a nod to the filmmaker René Clair entitled An Homage to René Clair, My Wife is a Witch. Barard pulled in lighting designers, artists, and even magazine publishers and graphic designers. Little spiral-bound books with images of the dolls were given out, featuring a lithograph on the cover created by Barard himself. Each 27-inch or 68.5-centimeter tall doll was a work of art, showcasing the finest of Parisian couture. Every detail on every garment and accessory was there. Every tiny clasp, buckle, zipper, and button. Everyone went to work. Seamstresses, milliners, embroiderers, button makers, cobblers, glove makers, handbag and leather artisans, and jewelers, including Cartier. Of course, each outfit required the appropriate coiffure done by the best Parisian hairdressers. This exhibition of miniature fashions would have an impact that was anything but small. The exhibition traveled to London and eventually to New York in 1946, where it was widely attended. In New York, from May to June of 1946, it went on view at the Whitelaw Reed House, which had been built by said architect in the 1880s for the railroad magnate Henry Villard. Elaine Bonnebelle traveled with the show, at least to New York, where she gave a special private viewing to Carmel Snow and Diana Vreeland. Snow was the editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar from 1934 to 1958, and Diana Vreeland was working there at the time. She would eventually become editor-in-chief at Vogue from 1962 to 1971. Not all the sets traveled to North America, however, and the garments shown in 1946 reflected the new spring-summer season attire versus that which was featured in 1945. Even tiny fashions were moving quickly. Of the 12 stage sets shown in Paris and London, only five made it to North America, and three of those were modified from their original appearance. The others on view were newly made. From New York, the exhibition traveled to San Francisco. The exhibition was a tremendous success, both domestically and abroad. The theater of fashion raised millions for L'Entrelle Française and reconnected French couture with the world from which it had become so isolated. Plastic production, which had already been ramping up through the past few decades, expanded during World War II and stayed strong after the war ended. Most dolls produced after 1945 are made of the stuff. In the 1940s, La Texture Products, Incorporated produced a toy-slash-educational piece that had a lot of the trappings of what would become the modern fashion doll. The fashion doll mannequin was designed to help teach children to sew. Of course, girls were the target audience. The fashion doll mannequin set included a hard plastic doll, a miniature dress form, and several doll clothing patterns. The doll, marketed as unbreakable, was a solid piece painted with hair and face. The arms were designed to pop off so kids could fit the clothes to the doll directly. The dolls were branded with the names of different paper pattern makers, the most common of them being McCall's and Simplicity. Plastic dolls were also being produced in Europe, albeit not exclusively for children. The completely plastic Build Lily doll came out in Germany in the 1950s, produced by the O&M Hauser Company. Prior to and even during World War II, O&M Hauser manufactured toy soldiers. In the 1930s, they produced a number of figurine sets that depicted higher-ups in the Nazi party. What a wonderful idea.
idea for a children's toy. Anyway, in 1943, the government stopped any non-essential production, basically anything that wasn't immediately needed for war. That put the kibosh on domestic toy fabrication. Lily was not geared towards women and girls initially, but rather was introduced as a toy for grown men. Build Lily was a sexy little novelty, not unlike the wiggling hula girls popularized as early as the 1920s, found on many a car dashboard from the late 1940s onward. Or, for that matter, those scantily clad and typically provocatively posed plastic anime or video game characters, sometimes called waifu figurines. I won't go into that too much today, but I think you get the idea. Lily's image was one typically found in tobacconist shops and barrooms. In fact, in a German brochure from the 1950s, the doll was advertised as, quote, always discreet, and that her wardrobe made her, quote, the star of every bar, end quote. Not really a uh, child-friendly message there. The Lily doll was based on a cartoon about a call girl, created by Reinhard Buthin that ran in West Germany from 1952 to 61. Lily, with her big blonde ponytail and buxom hourglass figure, was sassy and materialistic, and unabashed in using her sexuality to get what she wanted. While the Lily comic and doll came after World War II had already ended, Lily's salacious origins possibly go back a little further. In 1915, Hans Leap wrote a poem that would be finished and published a couple of decades later in 1937 under the title, forgive me, Das Lied eines jungen Soldaten auf der Wacht. I know I completely butchered that. I can't tell you how many times I practiced saying it and still couldn't get it right, so forgive me. It translates to The Song of a Young Soldier on Watch Duty. Leap was a soldier during World War I, and the poem was about a young man's longing to return home from the front to be with his beloved, whom he referred to as Lily Marlene. Leap used the name of his own girlfriend, Lily, he got Marlene from another friend of his, a nurse, who was the girlfriend of one of his fellow soldiers. The poem was set to music in 1937 by the composer Norbert Schultz and recorded by the German chanteuse Lale Andersen in August of 1939 and renamed Das Madchen under der Lantern, The Girl Under the Lamplight. The record actually flopped at first. Rumor has it that Nazi officials didn't really like it because it wasn't nationalistic or militaristic enough. As the story goes, a soldier working for the German forces radio station in Belgrade was instructed to find some songs to broadcast to Rommel's troops in North Africa. Lale Andersen's record was found and played over the air on August 18, 1941. Rommel's men loved it, and requests for the song poured in. It was played almost every night for the next three years. The song spread across Europe and was soon a hit across the continent. Of course, the Allies were listening in, and it was translated almost immediately. Anderson recorded an English-language version with lyrics written by Norman Bailey Stewart, who had spied for the Germans in the early 1930s and was the last British citizen to be imprisoned in the Tower of London. This version of the song was played to British forces in North Africa. Oh, and did I mention that Norman Bailey Stewart was a radio propagandist for the Nazis? Postcards in occupied France circulated featuring a tall, voluptuous blonde, Viewed from behind in a short skirt, back-seamed stockings, and tall heels, making out with a uniformed Nazi soldier under a glowing street lamp. The postcard was captioned Lily Marlene. If it had been unclear before, 
Lily Marlene was certainly presented in a more prostitute-like light, no pun intended, than that of a sweet girl next door waiting for her beloved in the postcard. Another postcard, this one captioned in German, features the shadows of a couple embracing on a dark street beneath a glowing lamp. One of the figures is clearly a uniformed soldier, the other a tall, curvaceous figure with hair in a low bun. Because they're in the shadows, her hair color isn't immediately apparent. But blonde is definitely not out of the question. Keep in mind, we're talking about a regime that promoted a particular archetype of physical beauty and desirability, one intent on separating the, quote, true German from the Jew or other inferior, which included Romani people and black people. I touched on this in episode six about the Zoot Suit's appearance in occupied France and why the SS were particularly threatened by it. The images on postcards like these were intended to appeal to a certain master race-loving mentality, conveying the message to young men that if they fought for the Nazis, then they too could hook up with tall, golden-haired Aryan vixens. Ick. Moving on before my last meal reappears, the British government was not pleased with the popularity of a German song, particularly on how it might affect the morale of the troops. The fact that a known traitor and Nazi accessory had had a hand in the English version was not exactly helpful. Rather than banning the song, which, face it, would only have made it more popular, the Ministry of Information had lyricist Tommy Connor pen another set of words in English. Connor, by the way, would go on to become known for another song that plays every year around the holidays, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. The popular singer Anne Shelton, who frequently performed on the radio and even in person for the British troops during the Second World War, recorded Connor's version of Lily Marlene. It was an immediate hit. In 1943, an American version of the song came out, performed by the German-American actress Marlene Dietrich. Lily Marlene was a song of longing, and it proved to be a hit across enemy lines. So what does all this have to do with the 1950s Lily doll? Well... While the song itself was not blatantly anti-Semitic, nor was it really nationalistic, the Lily Marlenes in the Nazi propaganda postcards bear quite a resemblance to Reinhard Buchin's comic Sex Pot, from the seductive clinging garments to the big blonde hairstyles. It does not help that Build, the publication that Lily comics were printed in, has been known for taking a far-right stance politically. Though Lily of the comics had blonde hair, and most of the dolls do, a few were made later with hair of other colors, including red and black. Lily as a doll came in two sizes, 30 centimeters, which about 12 inches, and 19 centimeters, or seven and a half inches. Aspirational, perhaps. She also featured three new features that had not been widely used in doll making prior to this time. The head and neck of the doll were not one solid piece, but rather several parts connected at the neck behind the chin. Her legs were designed to go straight out together versus sprawling when she sat and her hair was created using a cut-out scalp that was attached by a hidden metal screw. The doll was made of plastic and had molded eyelashes, pale skin, and a painted face with side-glancing eyes, high narrow eyebrows, and red lips. Her fingernails were also painted red. She wore her hair in a ponytail with one curl sitting on her forehead. Her shoes and earrings were molded on, and her limbs were attached inside by coated rubber bands. Each Lily doll carried a miniature copy of Build and was sold in a clear plastic tube with the doll's feet fitted into the base of a stand labeled Build Lily that formed the bottom of the tube. 
While Lily was originally a gag gift for grown men, her size and wardrobe would eventually make her very popular among little girls. Lily came dressed, but those clothes could be changed, and a range of outfits were soon available in stores. Those clothes, along with her packaging, were designed by Martha Marr, the mother-in-law of Rolf Hauser, one of the owners of the Hauser Company. Lily had outfits for the beach and athletic pursuits like tennis, party dresses, pajamas, even poplin suits. Marr also designed several dirndls, or traditional German dresses for Lily in later years. Lily eventually had furniture and a couple of dollhouse models. Her popularity spread across Europe, and she was soon marketed as a children's toy in other countries like Italy and Sweden, and would continue to be so through the earliest years of the 1960s. Some of the dolls produced for an English-speaking market were labeled Lily Marlene or Miss Marlene, further tying the doll to the World War II hit song. The mold used to make Build Lily would come back again. A doll called Miss Seventeen was billed as a teenage beauty queen, even though she looks like she could probably pass for about 35, and was released in 1961 by American company Marks Toys. The owner of that company, Louis Marks, had obtained the rights to Lily, but more on that shortly. In the United States, Madame Alexander, who I talked about earlier, was still going strong. In 1955, the company introduced Sissy, a 20-inch plastic doll with jointed elbows and knees. She also had eyes that closed and feet that arched perfectly for high-heeled shoes. Unlike her predecessors, she had a less youthful look, and her wardrobe reflected that. Sissy's wardrobe was one of her biggest selling points. From the outset, the Sissy doll was a trendsetter, with her tiny, detailed undergarments, including slips, crinolines, and tap pants, matching hats and shoes, and a range of clothes for every occasion. She had beach sets and bathing costumes, complete with espadrilles and cover-ups, a proper ensemble to wear to the opera, silk and satin evening gowns, suits, blouses, handbags, and jewelry. She even had trousers, gloves in two lengths, and belts. The gloves were fingerless in a gauntlet style, and from 1955 to 56, they were just tucked in on the edges. Starting in 1957, her gloves were hemmed. Basically, if an item was in a fashionable 1950s ladies' wardrobe, Sissy had several of whatever that item was in multiple styles and colors. Fashion dolls became increasingly popular through the 1950s, and pretty soon Sissy had some serious competition. From 1956 to 1959, Ideal Toy Company released the Revlon doll. Yes, Ideal had a licensing agreement with the cosmetics company. The Revlon doll was advertised as the, quote, most beautiful doll ever made, end quote, and came in multiple sizes, the most popular two being the 10-inch and 18-inch dolls. Unlike Sissy, the new Revlon doll's wardrobe included a number of synthetic materials that were becoming increasingly popular in the non-toy fashion market. The Revlon doll also had rooted hair. Sissy was discontinued in 1962. By 1960, Sissy sales had dropped, and she became more of a display doll used to model period costumes. She was replaced with another doll by Madame Alexander called Jacqueline. Jacqueline had rooted hair. In her last hurrah, Sissy wore a coronation dress, appearing as a young, newly minted Queen Elizabeth II. The look also featured a jeweled sash, white gloves, and a delicate tiara. On March 9, 1959, at the American International Toy Fair in New York, a plastic doll that clearly represented an adult woman, was released. 
that would go on to become one of the most popular toys of all time, and the world's most famous and influential fashion doll. Barbara Millicent Roberts, or Barbie, was technically born on March 9th, which I suppose makes her a Pisces. Pisces are known for being compassionate and imaginative dreamers, which makes sense given that the doll herself came into being after Ruth Handler saw her own daughter imagining the future while playing with paper dolls of adult women. This as opposed to playing with baby dolls. Handler recognized the aspirational aspect of her daughter's play, and Barbie's extensive and extremely broad list of careers, now numbering more than 200, is a testament to the doll's embodiment of unlimited possibilities. At the outset, Handler hoped that Barbie would convey to young girls that they could be anything they wanted to be in life. Barbie got her name from Ruth Handler's daughter, Barbara. Mattel, the company that released Barbie in 1959, was established in Los Angeles in 1945 by Harold Matson and Elliot and Ruth Handler. The company name was a combination of Matson's last name and Elliot's first name. Despite being one of the founding members of the company, Ruth Handler initially had to struggle to get the company on board with Barbie. Surprise, surprise, all of the executives at Mattel were men. Handler managed to get the execs to agree to sell the doll at a loss, marketing directly to her young target audience. Keep in mind that Mattel had been sponsoring the Mickey Mouse Club since 1955 and eventually bought all the attached ad space. This meant that no one else could run commercials during that time. Handler also managed to lure Jack Ryan, an engineer at Raytheon, over to Mattel with the title of Head of Research and Development. Yale graduate Ryan came over to Mattel in 1955. At Raytheon, he was designing something very different from toys. Ryan had been instrumental in the development of Sparrow and Hawk guided missile systems. At Mattel, Ryan came up with Barbie's signature twist-and-turn waist and click-click knee joints. He also helped develop Chatty Cathy, a string-operated talking doll that Mattel sold from 1959 to 1965, and Hot Wheels cars. The man had over a thousand patents to his name by the time he died in 1991. His contract promised him a 1.5% royalty on all toys he designed. Considering the popularity of just Hot Wheels and Barbie, that should have meant a metric shit-ton of royalties. But Mattel didn't exactly deliver, and in 1980 he sued Mattel for non-payment of royalties, which totaled in millions. They settled out of court. When she debuted in March of 1959, Barbie was priced at $3, which is about $30 in terms of present-day buying power. She was also marketed as a teenage fashion model, sporting a black-and-white strapless bathing suit, white framed sunglasses, black mule sandals, painted red finger and toenails, and her strawberry blonde hair styled into a ponytail. Copper tubes ran through her legs, and the balls of each little articulated foot had holes drilled into them. So did the shoes, which I will really get into momentarily. This was to accommodate the wire stand used to help keep Barbie standing upright. The zebra-striped bathing suit was designed by Charlotte Johnson and hand-sewn in Japan. There was something quite familiar about the face of this newcomer, though. You see, the handlers had gone on a family vacation to Switzerland. They stopped at some point in Hamburg, Germany, where Ruth had gotten her hands on several Build Lily dolls. Ruth, I should point out, was the daughter of Jewish immigrants from Poland. Ida and Jacob Moskowitz left Europe to escape anti-Semitism. There is a certain fantastic irony here. 
Handler and Mattel made a few changes, including rooted hair, less exaggerated proportions, although the proportions of the original Barbie have been at the center of multiple controversies over the years, a gentler mouth, and arched eyebrows. Barbie was also made of a softer vinyl and had fully formed feet with tiny toes that could change shoes. Lily didn't have feet. Her legs basically ended with her shoes. The side eye, heavy makeup, blonde hair, and other similarities remained, though. Moreover, the first Barbie's shoe choice, a barely-there black stiletto mule, also calls to mind her racy roots. I'll come back to this at another time, but I do want to talk briefly about the shoes. The shoe choice was actually quite popular with several sex symbols of the day, including Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield. Both of them had been photographed on multiple occasions in swimsuits wearing heeled sandals similar to those worn by the March 1959 Barbie. Mules date back to the 1600s, though they became especially popular among wealthy elite women in the 18th century, especially when hosting salons and events in their own homes. The mule became something between a house slipper and a hostess shoe, and were thus a bit less formal, signaling that the wearer was as such. This kind of gave them an intimate aspect. In modern times, that shoe has taken on kind of a suggestive connotation, especially when portrayed in films like Grease. Think of when Sandy comes on at the end in her tight black ensemble and those red leather stiletto mules. And then we can't forget about Female Trouble, the John Waters film, where Dawn Davenport, played by Divine, really wants these shoes, but her mother won't stand for it because... Nice girls don't wear cha-cha heels. The shoes only contributed to Barbie's mature and perhaps rather severe appearance, which caused some concern and criticism when she first debuted. The first career Barbie came out in 1960. As the trajectory we so often see from former models, Barbie began her career as a fashion designer. She made her first appearance in the office in a skirt suit that was, you guessed it, bright pink. In 1964, Mattel acquired the rights to Lily, and that was the end of that. Marx, who I mentioned earlier in conjunction with Miss Seventeen, was forced to stop production, and all production on Lily dolls ended. 1964 was also the year Mattel introduced Barbie's first younger sister, Skipper. When she was first released, Skipper was supposed to be about 10 years old. Later on, she would be marketed as a teenager. Skipper was the first of many siblings. They had a big family. Mattel would create Tootie and Todd in 1965, twin siblings of Barbie with red hair, unlike their older sisters. Stacy would debut in 1990 and Kelly in 1994. Kelly was discontinued in 2010 and basically brought back with the name Chelsea in 2011. Tootie was discontinued in 1971 and ever resuscitated under any other name. Barbie's boyfriend, Kenneth Sean Carson, was released on March 11, 1961. You may know him as Just Ken. And that is Kenuff. Okay, I couldn't help myself there. But Ken got his name from Handler's son, Kenneth. Don't think too much on how Barbie and Ken were named after a real-life brother and sister. We had quite enough of that in the last episode with the Habsburgs. Ken's younger brother, Tommy, first appeared in 1997. Ken, the first American male fashion doll, is also a Pisces. And in case you're curious, two Pisces do tend to make for a compatible love connection. So there you have it. Considering that the two have been on and off again since 1961, it checks out. Here, anyway. 
Mattel's backstory says that Ken and Barbie met on the set of their first commercial together. Like Barbie, Ken is dressed to beach. The first Ken had red swim trunks and sandals accessorized with a yellow towel. After the dolls were released, a bunch of books came out about Barbie, Ken, and all their friends that were a thing through the 1960s. Barbie and Ken all attended high school in the fictional town of Willows, Wisconsin. Midge was the third doll to be produced after Barbie and Ken and was presented as Barbie's best friend. Midge had a fuller, softer face and similar proportions to Barbie. The idea was that she might be able to offset some of the criticism of the early Barbie I touched on a minute ago. Midge was about Barbie's size, so they were able to share clothes and accessories. Like any international woman of mystery, Barbie's backstory was not to remain consistent. In the 1990s, the lore changed, saying that she moved from Willows as a kid and went to high school in Manhattan. In 2004, Barbie and Ken broke up for a bit. On Valentine's Day, no less. Ouch. I don't know how many of you remember this, but it actually made the news for a second. Barbie had a new man, an Australian surfer named Blaine, who had a, quote, extreme sports lifestyle, end quote. Blaine had floppy, highlighted hair, pouty lips, and a golden tan. He came with a hemp necklace, a pair of board shorts, and a pair of cargo shorts, a beanie, a pair of flippers, a boogie board, a water bottle, some sunscreen, and a blue wrist tag bearing his name. Blaine was marketed as Cali Guy Blaine and appeared in stores in June 2004, up until about 2006. In 2006, Ken got a makeover and Blaine was history. It wasn't until 2011, however, that Barbie and Ken would rekindle their relationship. The pair is still going strong today. Also, no word on whether Ken dated anyone else between 2004 and 2006. Barbie's fashionable wardrobe captured the world's attention from the get-go. Her original bathing suit by Charlotte Johnson was recreated in 1994 as part of Barbie's 35th anniversary edition. In 1999, the swimsuit's iconic design was reworked into a glamorous evening gown celebrating the doll's 40th year in production. Johnson was integral in bringing Handler's vision to life. Er, plastic. Being properly dressed for the occasion was very important in the 1950s and 60s. You didn't leave the house without hats, gloves, pantyhose. You get the idea. Johnson had her finger on the pulse of the day's trends. Mattel also paid for Johnson to attend shows at New York and Paris Fashion Weeks. Given that it sometimes took a couple of years to get a particular look from page to package, getting a jump on what would be fashionable was key. Early Barbie outfits even had details like tiny functioning metal zippers and snaps. Designer Carol Spencer joined Mattel in 1963 and would design the bulk of Barbie's wardrobe until she retired in 1998. Spencer is responsible for some of Barbie's most famous looks. Spencer also dressed Skipper, Tootie, Todd, Stacy, and Ken. When she retired in 1998, Mattel created a Carol Spencer doll in her likeness. This is an especially big deal, because for many years, Spencer's identity as Barbie's premier designer was a big secret. Mattel didn't want anyone else to know. In case you were wondering, Spencer, who is 90 years old, still loves pink. Carol Spencer won a number of awards for her work with Barbie and was the first designer to have her name actually appear on the doll itself. She created some of the doll's most iconic looks, including the highest selling of all time. I'm referring to Totally Hair Barbie from 1992 with the iconic colorful swirling mini dress. If you followed all the movie press, it's the look Margot Robbie borrowed for the Mexican pink carpet premiere. 
Spencer also created the famous 1985 day-to-night Barbie that goes from an elegant skirt suit to a glitzy evening party look. Every fashionable person needs an equally chic furry companion, and Barbie is no exception. While the doll has had quite a few pets over the years, her iconic poodle was reportedly modeled after Spencer's own dog, Buster. Barbie was and is a fashion doll in every sense of the phrase. Her bespoke wardrobe was the product of high fashion, but this would not be a one-sided conversation. Join me next time for the third and final episode of History on Ham's look at the history of the fashion doll, where we will look at some of Barbie's most important collaborations and get into contemporary trends, seeing how fashion and dolls are linked in today's world. Thank you for listening to this episode of History Unhemmed. History Unhemmed is written, hosted, and researched by me and produced by Gary Avizov. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook and leave us a review. Also, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you're interested in supporting the show, we are on Patreon and Spotify for podcasters, formerly Anchor. Links are in the show notes. Feel free to say hello on social media or drop us a line at historyonhemmedpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening.